All right. Here we go. If you haven't already, turn to John 17. That's where we're going to be. Before we get there, just uh, a couple of words, I think, of celebration. Churches ought to celebrate more often than they do, and so I'm going to celebrate a little bit. First of all, you see the baptismal up here. That's not a horse trough. That is a baptismal. Uh, And uh, we baptized six people in the first service, which was awesome. And we're getting ready to baptize five more in the second service. And uh, I'll just mention, if you missed that memo and you know that you need to be baptized, uh, hunt down Stephanie and and, uh, we might even have an extra t-shirt or pair of shorts for you that you could uh, join up. Um, There's water. What would prevent you from being baptized in Christ? So uh, anyway, that's going to be exciting. We're going to do that after the message, uh, after communion. So please hang around for that. It is a time of it's a powerful time of celebration and the confession and witness of, of the movement of God uh, in this community, in the lives of those who are being baptized, and in the world, really. Also, second of all, uh, many of you know and remember we took an offering on Christmas Eve. Uh, it's the <coughs> tradition of this church, Redemption, to take an offering on Christmas Eve that's not for the church but for the community. And Arcadia's uh, offering was for uh, IRC and New Roots, who work with uh, refugees. We are big into refugees, reaching out into the refugee community here. And um, I know that it was reported on once, but the report came on Sunday, December 30th, which we commonly call in church world Low Attendance Sunday, the last Sunday of the, of the year. So many of you never even got this announcement. I want you to know that just on Christmas Eve, this excludes any other time, just on Christmas Eve, in those boxes back there, you gave more than $7,000. And then through the internet and through everything else, we ended up giving more than $10,000 on a Christmas Eve uh, offering, which I have to tell you something. Churches are often scolded for not being generous enough. I want you to revel in the victory of being a generous church. That is really, really awesome. So thank you for that. Praise God. We are in our second week of a three-week mini-series on John 17, which is Jesus essentially praying for his church. And last week, we talked about how Jesus prayed for unity with the Father and that their glory together would be manifested through the fact that Jesus had accomplished the mission that the Father had given him to do here on earth, which was essentially to reveal to everybody who God is and then to save his people, the people uh, that God had given him. And so today we move on from that and look at the middle section of the prayer, which is 15 verses. And again, as we talked last week about how the prayer is is sort of divided up, these these middle 15 verses uh, are are where Jesus prays for his immediate disciples, those who are right there with him. But I want to say that that's not necessarily completely true. It's accurate, but it's not completely true because if you go beyond this section to the first verse of the last section of the prayer, which is verse 20, it says this, I do not ask for these only. In other words, I didn't just pray that, and I'm not about to pray only for these people who are sitting here, these men who are sitting here, but also I pray for those, all of those who will believe in me through their words. So in other words, what he prays in these 15 verses today is directed at, at those guys sitting there, but it But it has clear implication and application for us, too, because it applies to us. He's praying for us, for those who believe today and those who have believed over the last 2,000 years. So once again, you can't escape the fact that that today's message has tremendous application for us. Now, 15 verses. 
That's a lot, and it's way too many verses to intricately parse every jot and tittle and word and and get down and and really go as deep as we like to do in 45 minutes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to extend the the service by two hours. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to do two things. We're going to walk through the passage kind of verse by verse and get a general flow of the movement and understanding and context of it. But then we're going to, and we'll do that for about 25 minutes, and then we'll spend the last 15 or 20 minutes unpacking three really important principles that we can pull out of this prayer for us and here they are I'll just give you a little preview they are we need to understand that that we should do a better job all of us uh, at valuing our gift understanding what we've been given number two that we need to participate in our sanctification and number three that we should enjoy our security for we are kept people and I'll unpack all of that uh, later on so let's just get to the text verses 6 through 19 take a little while walking through that and getting a general idea Jesus starts this section of the prayer by saying in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now when Jesus says, I have manifested your name, here's what he's saying. He's saying that he has revealed the character of the Father God. He's revealed his character through his own life and ministry. And essentially, when you want to break it down, there's four main areas of, his, of God's character that he revealed. Certainly, he revealed the grace of God. Jesus revealed that God is filled with grace, unmerited favor for us. Second of all, he's also truth. God is also truth. And we'll see that theme throughout this passage in this message today, that truth is a central part of, of God's character and who he is. It's at his very essence. Third, that he loves us radically, ruthlessly, ridiculously, lavishly. God has a lavish love for us, and that's part of his character. And finally, number four, that that God is a God of covenant. He is a a God of promise, that he makes a covenant with us, that we're going to be his people, and that he's going to keep us and protect us, and he's not going to let anybody take that away from us. So grace, truth, love and covenant. These are all very good things. This is what has been uh, revealed to us. So now take a look at uh, verses 7 through 9. Jesus continues the prayer and he says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, <clears throat> this is one of the more difficult lines. Chap- uh, verse 9 is one of the more, more difficult verses in the prayer to understand. Some believe that Jesus is actually sort of disrespecting the world here, that there are actually people that Jesus doesn't love, and that's why he's not praying for them. And that's not it at all. We need to do a little work here to understand it. The Greek word that's translated world here has many and nuanced understandings. And in this specific case, what Jesus is not praying for, what he's not praying for, is people or our people who are thoroughly governed by the spirit of this world. So he's not praying for people who are governed by a steadfast and devout rebellion against the things of God, along with an unwavering refusal to see any point of view other than their own in this matter. Somebody who has dug in their heels, somebody who 
knows that God exists, has been presented with the gospel, who understands and has just steadfastly refused, actively rebelled against God and, and has said, it's my way, my way is better. In this particular case, Jesus is not praying for them. Now, those, there are some of you here who might be a little offended by that, and I understand that because for 27 years, that was me. I, I, was, I, I placed my faith, love, hope, and trust in the things of the world and in myself. And the gospel message was anathema to me. It was, it was like fingernails on a chalkboard, to use a, a phrase that some of you maybe have no understanding of, but it was bad, okay? And, and so it offended me, and so I understand that. Uh, but, but those of you who are offended, who kind of hold this worldly view, I know that some of you might be here, it's not that God doesn't love you. He does. The problem in this particular case, though, is that you have placed your faith and trust and hope in the things of the world and not in God and as a result, at this moment, he's not praying for you because in this moment, what Jesus is doing is he's praying for those who have placed their faith, hope, and trust in him, those who do love him, those who are going to be leading the church into the future. That's who he's praying for right now. And if you have said, I don't want any part of that, he's saying, okay, I'll pray for you some other time, but right now, I'm praying for the church. God does love the world and he loves you. He loves you so deeply and profoundly that he sent his only son to die for you. That's a deep and profound love. But right now he's praying for those in the church. But, but there's another side of this coin even, a little bit deeper, a little bit darker, that, that some of the commentaries said we, we also have to go there and understand this. And, and here it is. In our effort, and when I say our, I mean the Christian community, churches and groups of Christians in our effort to try to preserve the reputation of Jesus as if the reputation of Jesus needs preserving or protecting especially and I won't even cast this on you I'll just cast it on me here I am this flawed low-life scumbag sinner trying to protect the, the reputation of Jesus I mean come on can we see the irony in that but we feel like sometimes we have to protect the reputation of Jesus when we encounter a tough verse like this. And so as, as a result, we have the tendency to soft-pedal verses like this and try to strip them of their more inconvenient or potentially unpleasant realities. See, here's the reality that this verse is saying. The reality is, sit up and take notice. Jesus had a purpose and a mission, and he carried it out no matter how unpopular or culturally displeasing it was to some people. And it was certainly unpopular and displeasing. He got killed for it. Nevertheless, he said, I'm going to go and do this. And that mission, by definition, anytime, anytime somebody sets out on a mission, anytime somebody casts a vision, there are going to be people who are going to say no to that. That's just a reality of the world. That's just the reality of life. It means that some people aren't going to get on board. There are people who die without knowing Jesus. It's that simple. And they resolved to not know him. They staunchly refused to not know him. And there happen to be consequences for that. Scripture is very clear, as we saw last week. Salvation, reconciliation comes in, by, and through Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And you have to know him. And so if you deny him, you're denying life. And there will, there will come a point. This is tough stuff, but we're going to see this in Romans. There will come a point, if you continue to, to deny God, God is going to say, okay, you think you're so smart? You think you want to be God in your life? Okay, I'm going to turn you over to yourself. You are now in your hands. Paul says that in Romans. That's what God sometimes does. Okay? So Jesus is saying, I had a mission. I completed it. I'm praying for those people who are on board with me. Verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. 
and I am glorified in them. This is a statement, once again, that verifies the equality of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this case, Father and Son, but also, once again, reminds us of the humility with which the Godhead exists with each other, that they are constantly submitting to each other and shy to each other. And then verse 11, Jesus says this, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the sad reality is that Jesus gets to go to heaven while we have to stay here. That's kind of a sad reality. I can guarantee you heaven's better than, than here, all right? But it's also a prayer that says that we're going to be kept while we are here. You saw that word in there, kept. We will be kept in his name. Kept in his name is a Greek idiom that literally means that we will be protected, strengthened, and given power by God's very essence. If you're in Christ, Christ is in you, you, and I don't know what that was, but he's in you. And, And through his character manifesting itself in you, you are going to be protected. And finally... This verse reminds us of the unity that is crucial to the church. I want to say a word about uh, unity. It's, it's always just a little weird for me to teach on unity in the church because I believe that unity in the church is something that should go without saying. However, if you've been around any church for more than six months, you see that there is a need to talk about unity in the truth. It's another sad reality. See, I really believe, and and what Scripture says, so in other words, what Scripture says makes it true, not because I believe it, but what Scripture says is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, unity in Christ and unity in the church is something that should be natural, not legislated. It's something that should be inherent and not artificial. But sadly, it doesn't always happen that way. Sin, we're filled with sin. Agendas, we all have an agenda. We have preferences that get in the way. We, we, have, we have some people who are just power mongers and power peddlers who take advantage of the church, and all of that can get in the way of the unity. So we have, to, we have to stay on top of that. We have to recognize that for what it is, and we have to battle back in Christ against that. What happens is our, our flesh is fighting with the Holy Spirit, and our flesh can take over sometime, sometimes and drive us rather than the Holy Spirit driving us. There's that There's just that constant battle between the old man and the new man going on. And so we need to be watchful. We need to be careful. We need to be alert and on guard. Both Paul and Peter strongly talk about this in their writings as we just came through 1 Peter and and as you saw. And then verse 12, Jesus prays this. While I was with them, I kept them. There's again that word kept. I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, guarded, kept, same idea. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the one that was lost is Judas, and we understand that the, the verse that, that Jesus is probably referencing there is Psalm 41.9, if you want to look it up. But once again, this verse indicates the sovereignty of power, the, uh, of God, the, the authority of God in that uh, one would be lost just so that this prophetic scripture would be fulfilled. It's about the sovereignty of God. And then verses 13 and 14, Jesus prays, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, 
that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So now we have this issue of joy popping up. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, I, I, I said it before, I'll say it again. We're being left here. Jesus is making this clear. I'm leaving, going to heaven, leaving all of you here. And I will just tell you that the world is, listen, I know, I'm really bagging on the world today, okay? But you have to admit, the world has its trouble. The world has its problems. We have issues in the world. Can I get an amen on that? Can't we get agreement on that? Yes, okay? This place is a challenging, difficult place to be, and heaven is better. Definitely a better place. So Jesus is leaving us here. He's going to heaven. And then he says, not only that, but you're going to be hated. The world, everybody else is going to hate you while you're here. So we're left in this worst place and we're going to be hated. And here's the funny thing. That's going to fulfill our joy. That's how our joy is going to be fulfilled. Sometimes you've got to throw something like that out and just let people sit in the reality of that and wrestle with it. Now I will confess to you, this is going to be a little bit dark for some of you, I understand. I'm just opening up the vault here, okay? I will admit to you that there is a clear sense in which I'm really kind of sick of this world. And I would like to leave it. It just is. And, and, and I will be, I will, I'll, I'll be further, I'll be honest and say, a big part of the reason why I'm sick of this world is m merely the manifestation of my own sin. The destruction to my life that my sin does, the destruction to, to other people, the harm and hurt that my sin inflicts on other people I don't like it I think I would rather be in heaven where that's not going to happen anymore but I will also tell you I'm sick of everybody else's sin as well I, I'm just tired of it I, I I get a little I get a little weary of it and and I, it even annoys me just a little it just you know sorry God it annoys me a little bit that he leaves me here in the midst of this okay I know there's something better and and all the education and all the good intentions and all let all the let's improve the world strategies that we can muster is really not even going to put a dent in it to be honest with you we're the most educated successful yet depressed and medicated culture this that the world has ever seen so education success all of those things that we think is going to fix it it doesn't fix it. In fact, in many respects, it's just made it worse. God is the only one who can fix this. And I get impatient for him to do it. I want him to do it on my schedule, my plan. And when he doesn't, I'm like, okay, well then just let me go be with you. That's kind of the way I feel. And I confess it. It's a bit of a weakness of mine, Eeyore. But I also see the method in God's madness. There's another side to this coin. A lot of coins today. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, and, and this, is, this has impacted me a lot. It's, just very, it's very simple, but it's big. It's been big for me. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, has, when he was alive, he preached and he wrote about the fact that if you're not willing to wait, if you're not willing to wait on God, if you're not willing to, to practice the discipline of waiting, then you should not expect to experience the blessing of having waited. We have to learn how to wait. We have to learn how to be patient. We have to learn how to persevere. And I will say this. When I have waited in faith, as the psalm says, the joy does come in the morning. 
I never know which morning it's going to be, which makes it all the sweeter because it almost always comes in a morning when I'm least expecting it. But the joy does come in the morning. It's almost always a morning that's way further down the road than I want it to be or expect it to be or think it needs to be, but it's in God's timing, not my own. His thoughts are not my thoughts. His ways are not my ways. Thank God that's true, right? But it's true. I I have seen God work when I have been patiently perseverant in my waiting. I've seen God work in my life in a way that just blows me away. The joy does come in the morning. And, and, And here's what we need to understand. Think about how dark it was for those who were at the crucifixion of Christ. It was over. It was done. He was dead. So how do we lean into this? Well, listen closely because... Hebrews applies to that. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Listen closely to this passage. This is how we lean into this understanding that the joy will come in the morning. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, in other words, uh, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's just described all of these people who endured all sorts of awful stuff in faith. Some things turned out really well from a worldly perspective, other things not so well. But he said we have this great list of witnesses who give testimony to the reality and love and grace of God. And since we're surrounded by that cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, the purpose and mission that God has given us, let us lean into it and confidently go out and do it, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I didn't find my faith. I am not in charge of perfecting my faith. It is only through Christ that I found my faith, and he is in charge of perfecting that faith. But then here comes the big line, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Then this last line, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Here's where the joy comes from. The joy comes in knowing what it is that Jesus has done for you and me that you and I would probably never, ever, ever think of doing something like that for someone else, but he's done it for us, and in that process, he has exchanged our sin for his righteousness so that we can live a new life. And that should be celebrated. He left heaven and came here, and he was spit on, he was hated, he was mocked, and he was crucified just so that you and I could have life, and have it abundantly, John says, uh, Jesus said in John chapter 10, and he did this, we're told in Hebrews, he did it joyfully, joyously, for the joy that was set before him, he did this. Our joy is fulfilled by knowing who we are in Christ, and by enjoying the abundance and freedom that he has given us. And then he says in verse 16, 15 and 16, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, we can't go with him, but but we are going to be protected. That, That word keep again is there. You protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Uh, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Our world, our, our grid through which we see, understand, and filter reality is just so different once Christ invades our life than from people who have the world as their grid, people who do not know God. Just a little example. I was sitting with a friend a couple weeks ago, 
we were having coffee and we were talking and we the subject of movies came up. What have you seen during the Christmas uh, vacation and stuff? And uh, I'd seen a bunch of movies. He'd seen a bunch of movies. He said, oh, I saw Life at 40. I haven't seen that movie yet. Um, I don't know if I will. I'm not sure if it's my kind of deal, but I'm older than 40, so I don't need to see it. Um, uh, I already know what it was like at 40. But anyway, he saw Life at 40. And it was funny because he said, you know, 10 years ago, I would have watched that movie and thought it was funny and really been excited about it and kind of celebrated and everything. But he said, I'm watching it now knowing who Christ is. He's a Christian. I'm watching it now, and I'm watching this movie, and I di- here you go, direct quote. I didn't know whether to laugh or be depressed. And the reason is because he's saying, these people, and I know, I know, it's a movie, nevertheless, okay? He said, these people were so dysfunctional in their behavior, and they just thought it was normal, and it should be celebrated, and it was all fine. And then he said, here's what he said, these people just need God. They just need Jesus. Okay, let's inject Jesus into the screenplay, see how far that goes, you know? But that's what he said, and he said, I finally realized, this is not funny, it's sad. It really is, because you have to understand, in our culture, movies for many, many people are just sermons with pictures, and they get their reality, and they get their truth from movies. But here was this guy sitting here going, I don't think this is reality anymore. And it's true, the longer you know Jesus, the more difficult it will become to accept and celebrate the way the world does things. And our series in Romans is going to confront that reality with great candor when we start that on Easter Sunday. And then Jesus says in verse 17, sanctify them with your, in, in your truth, your word is truth. Jesus prays that we would be sanctified. The word for sanctified is hagiatso. It means to purify, to purge and strip away of impurities and to more and more see the world as, as God sees it and to more and more become like Jesus. Uh, Paul says in Philippians 2, have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. So we should look at the world that way. And what we need to wrestle with this is the fact that sanctification is, becoming, is the process of becoming more like Jesus essentially through these four tenants. Number one, it is a lifelong process. Uh, we live in a world that, is just, that just wants to microwave everything. We expect results fast. We want to lose weight in five minutes. We want a promotion the day after we start at a, at a place. I've been here eight hours. I don't understand why they can't see that I should be running this place. What's wrong with them? We, we just want everything so fast. You can't do that with sanctification. There's no microwaving of sanctification. And as a result, we need to learn patience and perseverance. We need to know what steady plotting is. Number two, it's based on a relationship. It's the fact that we are in Christ and he is in us and and that we should be in his word and and be talking to his people and we should be praying to him. We should be doing relational things with him. That helps to sanctify us because it improves our grid through which we see the world. Third, it's it's ethical. Uh, The truth is that Uh, the Christian faith naturally assumes that what you believe influences, affects, and changes how you behave. Once you believe something a certain way, it is going to affect the way you behave. It's an ethic, and and it's what Peter says in in his letter where he says, we're going to be set apart. We're going to be a little bit different. Julie Gorman calls it existential life change. It's not a methodology. It's not a list of things that you have to do. It's just going to happen supernaturally as you interact with Christ. 
It's existential life change. It's something that is outside of the power of your will to do. It's Christ invading you. And then finally, it's rooted in the truth of God's word, which Jesus says in verse 17. And I'm going to unpack further in those three points at the end. Finally, verses 18 and 19. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. So this section ends with the reality that not only are we left here, but we are sent into the world. God does not keep us so that we passively live a get-along life. And, and I've, I've been a part of Christian groups and churches and stuff that really, they really like the kept part, the guarded part, the I'm in Christ part, but that's really all they ever practice. They don't ever practice the sent part. They never practice the going part. God keeps us here, Jesus leaves us here so that we go, so that we are sent, because we are called. The word translated church literally means those who are called out. We are called out of the world to be sent back into the world to be agents of change for the world. And you can see that this, this is why this prayer is a good way to get ready for that six-week series that starts in a couple of weeks. It gives us a foundation. And so now... Here you go. Here are those three principles of application that I think we can pull out of this passage. Here's the first one. Value your gift. One of the things that simply pops in this passage is how often the word give, gave, or given is used in this passage. It's nine, to nine times. Give, gave, or given. It's the exact same Greek word each time. It's didymi. And, and the Greek word literally means, didymi, to grant to bestow or to entrust as a gift. And this word infers correctly that the recipient of the gift did nothing to merit the receiving of the gift. It is a pure gift. It's not a reward. It's not a wage. It's not a paycheck. It's not a transaction. It is a gift. And, and what that means to us, it, there's two things in this passage where we're directly involved in this. Number one, we've been given to Jesus. That means that we are saved. That means that we are new creations, that we live in a new reality, and it's a better reality. We have the mind of Christ in us now. Our sin has been exchanged for his righteousness. We take our sin to Jesus, and he gives us his perfection. And that's the way God the Father sees us from now on. And second of all, we've been given God's word and his truth. That means that we have all we need to live life here, now, before we go to heaven. You see, a lot of people think that eternity starts once you die physically, but that's not true. Eternity starts right now. It starts right now, right here on earth. Salvation is not just in heaven, but it starts now. And it is in God's word and truth that we find wisdom, guidance, and perspective to be able to to live in that victory and that salvation now. So why do we say value this gift? Value this gift. Value this gift. Because it is simply human nature to not value the way we should those things that have been simply given to us. It's just human nature that when we get something for free, we don't treat it with the respect that we ought to. Now some of you know this drill, but I'm going to take you through it anyway because if there's even one person who hasn't heard this yet, you need to hear the reality of this. Understand that three-quarters of all $1 million or more lottery winners are in bankruptcy within three years of winning the money. 
they thought that this would change their life for the better. It actually destroys most lives, lives when, you, when you win the lottery. Uh, somebody did a study once on, you remember that show, Extreme Home Makeover? I don't think it's still on, but remember? Okay, um, th they claim that 80% of the homes that, that Ty and his crew redid, 80% of them were trashed within a year. You give somebody who doesn't understand a gift a brand new home, and they're, they're going to treat it badly. Ask any psychologist or certified financial planner, and they will tell you. It is very rare the person who can receive an inheritance of more than a million dollars and it doesn't ruin their lives. And some of you are going, I'll, I'll take that ruining of my life right now. I understand that. I get that. But it becomes a problem. Ben Franklin, you know, you know the guy from a couple hundred years ago? You've seen pictures or drawings or whatever, stick figures, okay? Whatever you think of him, I think he had some great insights. I love, I love reading this guy and the biographies and all that. One of them was this, for every 100 persons who can endure adversity, I will show you, show you only one who can endure prosperity. It's true. But this is exactly why the gospel is so hard for so many of us to understand and accept. That's why. We hear the gospel, you bring your sin, and God exchanges that for the righteousness of his son. And you're kind of going, what's the catch? We didn't do anything to be chosen and loved and rescued by God. Not one thing there's nothing there's nothing God does not say there's nothing that you or I did that made God sit up and take notice and go oh myself I've got to have that one with me holy cow I gotta have Frank with me I gotta have my team's not complete without Frank and oh look at Jackie I gotta have her too he's not doing that he looks at us and goes mm, there's some issues there I love him anyway Looks at you and he says, oh man, big issues. Love you anyway. Here's our part in our salvation. I've been saying it the whole way through. What is it? Our sin. That's our part. That's it. What do you have for me, Frank? Well, I got this sin. Glad to take it. That is the only thing that I get to participate in in my salvation. And that's why often there are two dysfunctional responses to the gospel. And here they are. One of them is license. Well, I really understand grace now. I really understand the gospel now. I'm just going to go out and sin, sin, sin. It's party time. I used to try to restrain myself. I am not going to restrain myself at all now. Paul and Jude in his letter in the New Testament, they would say, then you really don't understand the gift. You don't understand how to value your gift. You have a misunderstanding of what it means, what grace really means. But there's the other side. The other dysfunctional response is religion and legalism, and Jesus plus. Well, it can't be that simple. I need to do something. I, I need to do my part. It's a partnership between Jesus and I. I know he's the general. I'm the limited, but still I got to do my part. And so we got to do works. We got to do a list. We got to get circumcised. We got to keep the law, whatever it is. And Paul in Galatians tells us that's not right. That's not right. If you're a Christian, your salvation, your eternal life is the greatest example of pure gift that there has ever been manifested in this world. And for those who understand this and do value it, the response is simple. Humble thankfulness. And out of that humble thankfulness will come a response of just living as he lives through you. 
This, this life that you will manifest will be the, by the power of him and not the power of you. And really, as I have lived and as I've learned and as I've read and as I've watched and have interacted with other, other people, I found that the best way to really do this is to simply get to know Jesus more and more and more. That's it. That's just, and, and again, that's not even a list that I'm giving you. It's just simply be in relationship with him. Read his word, pray, be around his people. And, and here you go, get in, your, get in your face a little bit here. Coming to church once a week and then never engaging in anything Jesus the rest of the week, you'll see a little progress, but you won't see a lot. It's the people who engage in Jesus the rest of the week in addition to coming on Sunday morning. It's, the, it's a very simple investment principle. If you invest a little, you're going to get a little return. If you invest a lot, the return is going to generally be a little bit larger. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, says it this way. The more you know Jesus, the more you will love him, and the more you will understand what it is that he's done for you. In other words, Packer would agree with this. It's point two. It's, it's that we need to also participate in our sanctification. Jesus prays in verse 17. Sanctify them, sanctify us. He's talking about us. Sanctify us in the truth, your word is truth. Now that's a short verse, but it is a major, major statement. Sanctification, again, it's the journey to becoming more and more like Jesus by learning his ways and experiencing his grace in your life. And what we must understand about God, I, I've been trying to communicate this morning that God has a deep and profound love for us. He just, he just loves us. It is his nature, his essence to love us. And he loves us right where we are. He loves us exactly as we are. That's how much he loves us. But he also loves us too much to just leave us there. He will, in fact, pick us up and take us somewhere else. So you're going to change as a Christian. As a Christian, change is not required. Change is not mandated, but change is inevitable. It's supernatural. You can't help but change. When I first became a Christian, I had no idea what I was doing. And Jackie was walking around going, you have changed. I've noticed the change in you. It's obvious that the power of Christ is working in you because I know you can't do it. She's got great candor. And the primary change agent in our life is what I've been saying. It's the gospel. It's the good news. And it's the truth of his word as applied by the Holy Spirit in our life. If you've ever gone online and you, you, you Google um, uh, these words, Google the history of truth, it's, it's part of uh, something called epistemology, which is the study of how we know things. It's fascinating. Every culture in every era believes or believed that they had truth figured out, that their understanding of truth was the understanding of truth. Even the idea that, that there is no absolute truth People think that's what truth is about. Everybody thinks they have truth figured out, that they have the market cornered on truth. But God makes a claim on truth that is countercultural, it is revolutionary, and to some people it's going to be a little bit offensive. And here it is. He says, my truth is the truth, it always has been the truth, and it always will be the truth. It's the truth, not a truth. So cultures, worldviews, perspectives, educations, and attitudes all come and go, but God remains the same. It's called immutability. It's the characteristic of immutability, and here's what that means. It's an attribute of God in which God is unchanging in his character, his will, his truth, and his covenant promises. And I should think that would be good news. 
but a lot of people think it's scary or bad news. So many of us are looking for something that we can, we can count on. If I could just count on something, if I could just count on someone, well, here you go, here it is. The truth of God, you can count on that. Um, I, 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 have, I, I, I like Deepak Chopra. I think he seems like a, a, a really nice guy, okay? But he said something on Nightline a number of years ago, and he's, you know, he's stuck to it that, uh, that is, I, I don't know, I've always wrestled with. He said this. He said, I am dedicated to the journey of seeking and discovering truth, but I refuse to follow anyone who claims to have found it. Come on now, work with me on this. Okay? See, when I hear a statement like that, I am forced to consider Jesus or Deepak. Jesus or Oprah. Oprah or Deepak? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but Jesus, Rush. Jesus, whoever. You're, you're forced into having to make a decision about one or the other. They both can't be true. And, and my honest analysis is this. It's, it's, here you go, Deepak. You're searching for truth, but you have already decided that you'll refuse to acknowledge it if it's found. I don't know, it sounds like a fool's errand. I'm sorry, that, that, I, that, you know, it just seems goofy to me. I guess I'm not smart enough to understand it. Here's what I do know, and not because I said so, but because it says so. This is truth. A and, and it's true because Jesus said it. it. And it is trustworthy and good and merciful and gracious. And you know what? When you really dig into it, it's terrific. It's the Greek word aletheia, which, which literally means truth that is not merely conceptual, but real, pure, concrete, and moral. It's not true philosophically, but true essentially. It is the essence of who God is. And we will be sanctified by it. We will be changed by it. It's the power of God through Christ. It's truth. And finally, that leads to our last one. Enjoy your security, for we are kept people. I love this one. Partly because, again, uh, we have a concept here that has some negative overtones in culture. You, you, you ever hear somebody say kind of with a sneer, oh, she's just a kept person, and oh, he's just a kept person, and, and, it, and it has very negative overtones? It, it, you know, it's like an insult to be called a kept person because you're somebody who is benefiting from someone else's wealth and resources without doing anything. And we really don't like to see anybody else benefiting from somebody's wealth and resources without doing anything. Unless, of course, it's us. We're okay with it if it's us. Okay? But it's exactly what God does for us. We benefit from his wealth and resources. And his, his wealth and resources are love, mercy, forgiveness, covenant, truth, grace. And he keeps us. In his wealth and resource, he protects us as part of the gift. The, the word translated gift or guarded is, is used five different, there's two different Greek words, they're essentially interchangeable, and they're used five times, and they literally mean to protect, to watch over, to preserve, not like raspberries, but to garrison, to buttress. In other words, we cannot be lost, and so we should live in victory. It's the same word we talked about in 1 Peter that Sean read earlier, that our inheritance is preserved, guarded, protected, garrisoned in heaven for us. It's a guarantee. Here you go. You and I have no spiritual expiration date once we are in Christ. And as a result, 
we can see that we have a God-ordained purpose and mission. Whatever yours is, and we'll talk about what Arcadia's is in, in a couple of weeks, and we can confidently go on that mission and execute our purpose. Eleven days ago, I was in the preaching collective, the Redemption Preaching Collective, for this particular message, and, and, a, and, a, and a discussion broke out about why was this prayer written down, specifically this prayer, why this prayer? And the thought in the room was, it's so intimate, it's so personal and seemingly private. Well, the answer has to be that God wants us to know the depths to which we are loved. You listen to this prayer. You listen to Jesus talking about us and who we are. And, and, and the Father giving us to him and receiving this. And the profound love and grace and mercy that we have. The single greatest occupation of Jesus' mind is us. Because the will of the Father is to save us from our sin, from ourselves, from our foolishness. And this prayer lets us in on that. You know, if God were to ever just sort of somehow manifest himself in his fullness to us, it would literally blow us away I, I really think that in a sense this prayer is is sort of the veil of 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 god being lifted up so that we get a manageable peek inside of just how much he truly loves us and that's why this prayer has been recorded and we'll look at the last six verses of it next week let me pray josh and sean will come up and lead us into communion and after that, we're going to go into our baptism. So stick around and celebrate that with us. Gracious and holy God, again, we declare your love for us, your sovereignty and your authority, your authority over us, and the fact that uh, you have guarded us and you will guard us. You'll protect us. That, God, you love us deeply and profoundly. And so, God, we thank you for that. And we just pray that we would value that. God, that we would understand more and more who you are so that we can lean into our relationship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.